0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, Tracy, have you ever heard of a cat named Tibbles who was single handedly responsible or pawedly, you'll sometimes see it written out, uh, for wiping out an entire species of bird? Yep, because of a lighthouse keeper. Yeah, it shows up on various listicles from time to time. Uh, along the lines, you'll see like, ex-animals who changed history. Uh, it's one of the most famous extinction stories. And because it has this quaint, though sad, aspect to it, it has really taken on a life of its own. And it's one that gets repeated a lot. But the real story is actually a lot more complex than simply saying one cat killed all the birds. Uh, so today, we're going to take a look at the original tale, as it's usually told, and then we'll delve into the reality of the demise of the bird species involved, because the bird did legitimately go extinct. That part is true. And it also becomes an interesting story of conservation and the importance of protecting both flora and fauna, unique to specific and isolated locations. And there's even a little bit of scientific community intrigue and offense in the mix. So it's got everything for a good story. Also, uh, because this does involve extinction, and then later ways to try to combat similar problems, there is it's pretty much a whole episode where we talk about animals being killed. So if that is something particularly sensitive to you, this might not be your episode. Uh I will say this. I am usually particularly sensitive to it. It does not bother me in this context. So I don't know if that's your guidepost or not, but there you go.
0: Well, and having had an outdoor cat from... Like 1980 until approximately 1996, a long time. But anyway, I grew up with an outdoor cat because we lived out in the country, and that was what you did. Yeah, you become accustomed to cats bringing you things. Yeah, cats bringing us small animals was something that happened all the time. So. Yeah,
1: yeah we had that growing up, and it is one of the reasons my small herd never goes outside.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my my Uh, cats, once I was an adult and caring for my own cats, were strictly indoor. Although a couple of them did escape on at least one occasion. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, but today we're going to talk about the Stevens Island Wren and this cat and what did and did not happen.
0: The particular wren in this story was a tiny bird. It could fit in the palm of a human hand, and it was found on Stevens Island, which is in New Zealand. It's likely that these wrens, known as Xenicus traversia leali in Latin and sometimes called lyle wrens, were possibly part of the fauna of ancient Gondwana land. They were related to the kiwi.
1: Fossil evidence suggests that these tiny birds are ones that are incredibly closely related to them, once lived throughout New Zealand. And it's believed that the introduction of predatory species such as rats eliminated them from all the other areas of the country but Stevens Island, which was isolated by the 1890s.
0: The birds were dark olive brown in color with yellowish color coloring at the throat and the breast. Skeletal evidence, as well as witness uh, accounts, indicate that the wren was flightless. It spent its time on the ground hunting for insects to eat, and that makes it one of only three known flightless songbirds in the world. The wrens nested in small, out-of-the-way spots, such as holes and recesses under rocks, and it was also believed to have been nocturnal.
1: Yeah, I read one account that said that it weighed about the same as a quarter, but I didn't find anything that backed that up. But even so, it's a very tiny, light little thing. And sometimes you'll see it, uh when people described it, they talked about it being almost more like a mouse than a bird in some ways, probably because it scurried along the ground. The island itself is also known by its Maori name, Takepourdua, and it is a small place. It is less than a square mile. Uh, that's another one of those things that gets uh, reported very differently. Some will say it's only half a square mile, some even less than that. But we know that less than a square mile, uh, about 1.5 square kilometers estimate. And it sits about two miles off of New Zealand's South Island's northern shore, at the northern edge of the Marlborough Sounds. And the weather on the island is mild in temperatures, but there is frequent rain and often high winds.
0: It was renamed Stevens Island after Philip Stevens, the late 18th century first secretary to the admiralty of the United Kingdom. Prior to the 1870s, it hadn't been explored by any Anglo parties It's unknown if any Maori peoples visited it prior to that, but it was a pristine place in terms of its ecological condition when maritime officials from New Zealand first visited it.
1: And because the island sits on a shipping route and there had been several shipwrecks nearby in the middle of the century, it was outfitted with an oil-powered lighthouse in 1894. That lighthouse stood at the highest elevation point above sea level, of any lighthouse in New Zealand at the time. It was also more powerful than any others in New Zealand uh, at that time, and it cost more than 9,000 pounds to build.
0: Before the lighthouse was installed to illuminate the Cook Strait's western approaches, Stevens Island was almost entirely untouched. There were no non-native species that had been introduced. The flora was just uh, natural and unchecked and undeveloped.
1: Well into the 1800s, the tiny island was pretty densely forested. When workers first arrived in 1892 to start construction on the lighthouse, birds were abundant. Uh, The journals of one of the men, F.W. Ingram, are quoted in a 2004 paper about the extinction of the wren. That paper was written by Ross Galbraith and Derek Brown. And according to Ingram's account, there were two kinds of wren, saddlebacks, native thrush, and native crows on the island when the work began there.
0: After the lighthouse and a small farm were established, an estimated 90% of the island's native forest was destroyed due to grazing and fire. A patchy low forest eventually established and remains uh, in the place of the thick forest that had been destroyed. And shrubs, grasses, and vine lands persisted also. So with
1: this new fancy lighthouse, the island needed a lighthouse keeper. So we are getting now into the story as it's usually told. So in 1894, David Lyle moved to Stevens Island to fill that position. And the island was not easy to get to. Travelers had to cross Cook Strait by boat and then board a basket that was attached to the station's crane. And after that, there was an uphill walk of about 180 meters or 196 yards to the lighthouse itself. This was a pretty extreme, solitary-type position that you would accept.
0: Lyle, his wife, and a son also brought along a cat named Tibbles when they moved to Stevens Island. The idea was that Tibbles would keep the mice at bay and also be a companion for this lonely outpost. They were not the island's only residents, actually, but we'll come back to that. Of course, a good mouser such as Tibbles would also probably be interested in going after small nocturnal birds as well, especially since... As Holly said earlier they've been described as mouse-like, but that was never the intention. <laughs> they did no. not on purpose bring a cat to kill birds. No,
1: and usually when you hear this story told, they really only talk about David Lyle and Tibbles, and his any family is kind of left out. But so, not long after David and Tibbles and his family arrived on the island, the cat started bringing fresh kills to her human. Lyle was interested in nature, and he was an amateur ornithologist, and he had never seen a bird quite like the ones that Tibbles was killing. So he examined them, and he skinned them as he did to, you know, more fully uh, take account of what their body was like and what these birds were.
0: When a ship brought supplies to the island on its regular bi-monthly schedule, Lyle sent one of his Wren skins back on it, intending for it to reach a well-known ornithologist, Sir Walter Buller. It's believed that he did receive this skin sometime in July 1894. Later on, Buller would write, quote, There is probably nothing so refreshing to the soul of a naturalist as the discovery of a new species. You will readily understand, therefore, how pleased I was at receiving the skin of a bird from Stephen Island, which was entirely distinct from anything hitherto known. Eventually, Lyle collected... Ten
1: samples. That number is going to shift around when we get to the reality, but for the purposes of this story, ten samples from Tibble's offering. And they were in good condition because the cat seemed to be more interested in killing the birds than she was in eating them. Uh, feline behaviorists might also suggest that she was bringing them to Lyle as a means of offering him provisions, showing she could take care of him as well as herself. There are also theories that cats do that to try to teach us stupid humans how to find our own food. But uh, in any case, she was not eating them, so they were in quite good condition. After he had been examining these various specimens, Buller realized that the birds Lyle had been collecting from Tibbles were a previously unidentified species of wren. So one of these, uh, Buller sent to London to the British Ornithologist Union so it could be illustrated. And he also was preparing his research and findings so that he could publish his discovery of the Stevens Island Wren in the journal IBIS.
0: It was believed that there had likely been 10 mating pairs of the wren on Stevens Island before Tibbles the cat got there. This is not a large number of birds, to be sure. So it would not really take very long for an enterprising cat with decent hunting skills to severely damage those numbers. In 1895,
1: just a year after Lyle and his cat had arrived on the island, the Christchurch Press commented on Tibbles' work. Quote, There is very good reason to believe that the bird is no longer to be found on this island, as it is not known to exist anywhere else. It has apparently become quite extinct. This is probably a record performance in the way of extermination.
0: And according to legend, Tibbles wiped out the Stevens Island Wren almost as soon as it was recognized as a newly discovered species.
1: So that's the story that you usually get told in uh,
0: quickie articles. Yep. Or in like a one-sentence throw throwaway line in the context of something completely different. It will be like, and there was yeah. even an entire species of bird killed by the lightkeeper's cat.
1: Yeah, but there is a lot more to this story. And before we dive into that bigger, more detailed version of what happened to the Stevens Island Wren, we're going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. While the story of Tibbles and the Stevens Island Wren is a cautionary tale about the dangers of invasive species, and that is a very legitimate concern, the very simplified version that is normally shared leaves out some more complex and nuanced elements to the decline of one species due to the import of another, as well as the involvement of many more players in the narrative.
0: Yes, we are definitely not downplaying the the threat of invasive species, but that, there's a bigger story going on here. During the construction period for the lighthouse, an anonymous collector had visited the island to gather specimens. Galbreath and Brown put forth the theory in their paper that the collector, which is a pseudonym used by that person in question when publishing in the Wellington Evening Post, was in fact none other than the local natural history dealer, which was a man named Henry H. Travers.
1: And before Lyle and Tibbles even set foot on the island, Sir Walter Buller was aware of the number of birds to be found there, most likely due to the accounts that the collector had published in the paper or through contact with Travers himself. Of note, however, no Wren was actually mentioned in the writings of the collector. I also just love that he wrote as the collector because, of course, there's a whole Guardians of the Galaxy comedy tie-in that we could do. Um But he'd not mentioned the Wren at all in any of these writings. Uh And there were no mentions of a wren in the comments of Buller at a January 1893 meeting of the Wellington Philosophical Society where he discussed some of the unique birds that could be found on Stevens Island.
0: Buller also suggested at that meeting that two other New Zealand islands, Resolution Island and Little Barrier Island, could be used as preservation grounds for some of the bird species that were experiencing population decline on the mainland. But it appears that no similar consideration was given to Stevens Island.
1: Regarding David Lyle and Tibbles, we mentioned a few moments ago that they were not the only ones who had moved onto the island. In fact, there were three lighthouse keepers and their families, as well as a teacher to see to the children's education. Seventeen people in all at the start of 1894 when the lighthouse became operational.
0: While Lyle was sending his samples to Buller, at some point Henry Travers also became aware of the unique items being relayed by Lyle through an intermediary aboard the supply ship. Travers and Buller were not unknown to each other as a dealer in natural items Travers had done business with Buller on a number of occasions, and Travers felt as though such rare and unique specimens could be sold for more than Buller was able to pay. He convinced Lyle to sell him some of the Wren skins.
1: Yeah, so in addition to whatever cat activities are happening, we are now seeing... An uptick in human interest in these birds. Uh, and this is where yet another man enters the picture, the Honorable Walter Rothschild, who had dealt with both Travers and Buller as specimen dealers prior to this new discovery of the Stevens Island Wren. And as a wealthy Englishman, Rothschild had both the means to pay handsomely for rare specimens and the connections to publish information about them before Buller could.
0: There actually was some realization among the British ornithologists involved in publishing the Ibis in the British Ornithologist Club Proceedings periodical, to which Rothschild to which Rothschild's research had been presented, that there were two men describing the same find, but both went to press.
1: Yeah, so for clarity at this point, Travers has started selling to a very rich person in London, Rothschild. At the same time, Buller is also purchasing these samples. And they are writing up about this newly discovered species and they both presented to both the Ibis and the British Ornithologist Club's proceedings, just their little periodical, their notes on their meetings. And that's a small enough group that there were a lot of crossover people going, Hey, we don't we have a thing from that guy Buller about this? Didn't I going, read this yeah, before? But, yeah, but we're going forward with this too. So, uh, they, they both published and it was a little bit of a a gentleman's drama. Uh, So Rothschild named the Rend Traversia lialli in the proceedings that was published in December of 1894. When Buller's paper came out in April of 1895, the bird was called Xenicus insularis. And this entire chain of events caused massive friction between the two men, each declaring that the other had not been a gentleman. You may recall from the beginning when we talked about the bird that it is called Xenicus, and then sometimes Traversia, in parentheses, Leali. So in the end, there was sort of a a combining of the two in the scientific community.
0: This is like a much smaller, in every sense of the word, version of the Bone (laughs) Wars. Yes. But even before Buller's paper, which was uh, printed by Ibis, that editorial from the Christchurch Press we mentioned earlier that declared the wren likely extinct had already come out. So there was already an article saying the bird was probably extinct before the scientific paper on it.
1: Yeah, so there was the first printed stuff in December. In March, that article came out in the Christchurch paper saying, there are no more of these birds. And then in April, Buller's uh, paper was published saying, I've discovered a new kind of bird. Uh, it's a, it's a, a very uh, complex and tightly packed timeline in terms of like discovery and when this bird was thought to have ended. So in March of 1895, Travers wrote to Rothschild a letter that suggested that he was hunting wrens himself to send to London. Quote, I have recently returned from a special trip to Stevens Island, where I went to have a good hunt for more specimens of Traversia Liale, but unfortunately without success. I hunted the island over and round, and as I had three men with me who formed my boat crew and some of the residents of the island, you can imagine we made a thorough search. I did not get any specimens of the bird I went specifically for, although Mr. Lyle's boy gave me a specimen that had been found just alive by the owner of the cat that had caught the others, and this his father had put into spirit. So at that point, humans are also hunting the bird.
0: That claim of extinction in early 1895 may have been premature. For one, Travers seems to have used the news of the extinction to charge higher prices for the preserved bird ses- specimens that he offered to collectors after that. So he might have been perpetuating this claim of extinction for his own financial gain.
1: Yeah. If you look at uh, how his prices rated that first one that he sent to Rothschild, I think he charged Five pounds for, and then he tried to charge 35 pounds for, and was eventually talked down to 12, if I'm remembering correctly. So he was definitely like, there are no more of this bird. It is a lot more expensive now. But, uh, both Travers and Buller each received additional specimens for several years after 1895. So even after he denounced personal collecting of endangered species specimens, Buller continued to seek out the Stevens Island Wren for himself. And when I say that, I mean in specimen form, not live Stevens Island wrens. Uh, He also made purchases for his son to have them, as well as at least one other ornithologist. And Buller, for the record, maintained in his notes that all samples of the bird had come from David Lyle, and thus that would be from his cat. But that gets into some weird issues, as there are specimens in museums that are labeled as late as 1899, well after Lyle had actually moved on from the Stevens Island lighthouse job.
0: Additionally, there are completely mismatched accounts of just how many preserved wrens there are floating around. If you compare the records and letters of Travers and Buller, things do not match up at all. Travers was still selling Stevens Island wrens into the early 1900s, but it's unclear whether those were items that he had been hanging on to for several years or if they were new acquisitions. Additionally, even those records might not truly reflect the lots that Travers was selling at the time. So there's no way to verify even the existence of Travers' stock of the extinct bird, let alone its condition relative to its age.
1: Yeah, there's one story of a museum that discovered that they had a lot that someone had purchased uh, from Travers, but it was largely destroyed. It had not been properly cared for, so they did not account for whether or not there was a wren in the mix there. Uh, There's a lot of not really fantastic record keeping, which leads to a lot of the the nebulous aspects of this story. So the thing is, though, that collecting may have really had a significant hand in the extinction of the Stevens Island Wren. But we don't actually know if Travers ever managed to catch any. The two times that he claimed he tried, the one that we read his writings about earlier, and there was one other time, he reported that he failed on both of those occasions.
0: And there are additional factors, too. Remember earlier when we mentioned that there were other people who moved to the island in addition to David Lyle and Tibbles? Apparently, someone else in that group of people also brought at least one other cat. Or possibly Tibbles was pregnant when she arrived. Because within a few years, there was a cat population on Stevens Island, not just one cat And it's also possible that the name Tibbles was just attached to the story later. It wasn't even Lyle's cat in the first place, but just a cat that happened to be around.
1: Yeah, it's like I said, it's been simplified in a really fun way to tell, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality. And we're going to talk more about the cats on Stevens Island and what happened to all those bird bodies after we first take a little sponsor break. So right before we went to break, uh, Tracy was saying that there was a cat population at some point on the island. And it's unclear when exactly it became more than one cat or if it had always been more than one cat. There are mentions of other cats in notes and writings made by people about those early days of the lighthouse community. But these are all anecdotal and they were written after the fact. So they're not especially reliable. As early as 1895, though, Lyle was writing notes to Buller about the available birds on the island, and he specifically references some of them being scarce due to cats, plural. He also describes those cats as having become wild, so there was already the beginning of a feral population like a year after he had arrived.
0: By 1897, the cat population was noted by a lighthouse keeper as being a, quote, large number, the report that description was included in also suggested that some means of destroying the cats had to be found a few years later in 1901. The native reptile population was also in danger and a bounty was established on the cats.
1: Yeah. At that point, they were kind of like, well, the birds are already gone. Uh, so we'll figure this out. And it got put off, but then,
0: and then they were like, the, there was a
1: very glorious reptile population on Stevens Island and they were like, okay, we can't let this happen again. Now we have to kill the cats, which this is, sucks.
0: This is reminding me of the webcomic Camp We Don't Want I don't know if you've ever <laughs> read that, but it is a camp about about children who have been sent by their parents to this camp because they are not wanted for whatever reason. Uh, and in one of the early strips, there is what everyone thinks is going to be a food drop, but it turns out to be a box full of feral cats. And every uh, every installment of the strip after that has a cat hidden somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> so in
1: 1905, this was four years after the, the cat bounty was established, Sir Walter Bueller made a written suggestion that cats should no longer ever be allowed on the island or on any other isolated islands where native species could fall victim to their prey drive. And he also included the suggestion that if mice were a concern, for example, if people were going to take care of the lighthouse and they were worried about mice, that the state should provide at state expense mouse traps rather than allow feline rodent management in such places.
0: Over the course of more than two decades, hundreds of cats were shot on Stevens Island, and in 1925, the island was declared to be free of cats.
1: So even though it is not really entirely fair to blame Tibbles for ending the Stevens Island wren the role of cats in shifting the balance of wildlife populations is one which has been debated for some time. And cats most assuredly were responsible for the majority of the deaths of those birds, and they were threatening other native wildlife on the island after those wrens were gone.
0: According to a study published in Nature in 2013, free-ranging domestic cats in the United States were estimated to kill 1.3 to 4 billion birds. That's billion with a B. And 6.3 to 22.3 billion also with a B mammals annually. For the purposes of that study, domestic cats included both cats that have a home but are allowed to roam and strays, including ferals, with homeless cats responsible for most of those kills. That same study also commented that, quote, free-ranging cats on islands has caused or contributed to 33 or 14 percent of the modern bird, mammal, and reptile extinctions recorded by the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List.
1: Humans are still trying to figure out how to manage cat populations in ways that are humane in order to curtail the unbalanced mortality in other species, That can result from even well-fed but still prey-driven animals. While cats, as we discussed on an older episode, have become part of human culture, both for their excellent pest hunting skills as well as their companionship, they are also very, very good at multiplying at a really rapid rate. So efforts to find and execute a solution still continue.
0: As an aside, it appears to have been Rothschild's account of the entire situation that first pinned the loss of the entire species on tibbles. And then that was repeated for simplicity for more than a hundred years.
1: Yeah, and Rothschild this whole time, we should point out, was in London. It wasn't like he was on the scene. He wrote this after the fact and having never actually been to the place where this was taking place. And as for what happened to all of those deceased birds that were collected on the tiny island, there are 15 wren specimens accounted for, and those have made their way into museum collections around the world. Of the samples Rothschild gathered, the Natural History Museum in London has three, the Museum of Natural History in New York has four, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia has one, and the Museum of Comparative Zoology in Cambridge, Massachusetts has one.
0: The three that Buller had, one for himself and two for his son, are in the Canterbury Museum, Christchurch, which has two. And the last is in the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh.
1: There are also Stevens Island Wren specimens at the Colonial Museum, now the Museum of uh, New Zealand Tipapa to Tongarewa, I am probably mispronouncing that. I could not find a good pronunciation example, uh, which is in Wellington. And the Otago Museum in Dunedin. And that one actually lists two, but only one is is clearly accounted for. So there's a little bit of fuzziness, th- fuzziness there as well.
0: The Stevens Island Lighthouse still exists. It was converted from oil to electric in the late 1930s and then was automated in the late 1980s. In 1989, the last lighthouse keeper left the island. It's not open to the public, and the Maritime New Zealand's Wellington office conducts operation and monitoring of the lighthouse remotely.
1: Uh, Yeah, if you want to go to the island, you're probably a scientist. Because there are still multiple rare species on the island, particularly what has been described by scientists as a diverse reptile community. It is now a nature reserve. For example, a reptile called the tuatara is of particular import on Stevens Island, uh, as it is the only surviving species of its order. They are also the cutest things, in my opinion. <laughs> you see pictures of them. They just have very cute little expressive faces. Yeah. I saw, um,
0: so, I saw some videos of one. Apparently there was a, a reintroduction effort, uh, yeah. with them. Uh, and I, as I was looking for examples, I was like, I was looking for videos of New Zealanders saying, all these words. Uh, and then I got down a rabbit hole of looking at lizard videos.
1: <laughs> They're really cute. Uh, and it really has become New Zealand is really making a, a massive effort at conservation. And in part of in part, this whole episode is is the driver of some of those those efforts. Like people realized, oh, if we are not thoughtful about how we handle particularly these small islands that are harboring things that cannot be found anywhere else and are small in number. We will then make sure those never exist on the earth again and we don't want that. So there, there is a lot of care going into trying to preserve native species. Yeah. So that is the more complicated than just Tibbles the cat ate all the birds version <laughs> of how the Stevens Island wren went extinct. Yeah. Although cats were responsible for a lot of it.
0: I sounded a lot more chipper when I said yeah than the story actually warrants. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. So only in museums now in their deceased form, unfortunately. Yes. Um yeah.
0: Do you also have listener mail?
1: I do. I have two pieces. Uh The first is from uh, our listener, Stephanie. It is also related to uh nature things. She says, hello, ladies. I just wanted to drop you a quick note and let you know about a weird coincidence and another example of Maria Sabuya Marion's rising star. I was just in Edinburgh. I'm writing this on the plane home to Canada, actually, where there is currently an exhibit of Maria's work at Hollyrood House in the Queen's Gallery. The exhibit is called Maria Marion's Butterflies. And I was able to see a number of beautiful works by both her and her daughters. And the episode actually came out the day I went to the exhibit. Unfortunately, I did not see the episode until the plane ride home, but I really appreciate the context you were able to provide, significantly more in-depth than the gallery's placards. If anybody happens to be in Edinburgh, that exhibit runs until, I believe it is July 23rd. Uh And it looks really, really beautiful. So please go if you get a chance. And it's always fun and cool when things uh, kind of coincidentally happen that way. Uh And my next piece of listener mail is a gift that Tracy doesn't know about yet. So uh I always like surprising her with those. Since I'm here in the office where things come... Where parcels come to and she is not. I get to often, you know, spring them on her.
0: Well and we when you when you said it was a surprise, I had this giant mouthful of coffee. It was almost disastrous.
1: It's not a it's not a spit take surprise, but it's a nice treat. Uh it's from our listener, Michelle, who says, Tracy and Holly, thank you guys so much for putting on an amazing podcast. I'm a Louisville native and I was so excited to see a podcast on the Derby pop up. I'm also so glad that you don't skip over the bad parts or lesser known facts as I had no clue about the racism that happened in the sport of horse racing. Despite its checkered history, I hope you'll both accept these mint julep glasses from this year's Derby. So we got mint julep glasses, and they're really cute. Nice. Uh, and she's some sort of male sorceress because they came in perfect condition, and they are glass, and that does not always happen. Uh, so thank you, thank you, Michelle. Good job on the packing. The Derby in Louisville is so much more than just a horse race. Events range from a massive fireworks show to bed races, the Pegasus Parade, and a marathon, and so much more. If you all get the chance, I hope you will take the opportunity to explore a beautiful city and all we have to offer. Thanks for making my commute so much easier. Thank you so much, Michelle. That was so sweet to send us those. Uh huh. They're very cute. They're really, really lovely little glasses. So, um, I lo- I love it. We get so many amazing gifts. I feel bad. Like I said, I always say I feel bad that we can't read every single thing on the air because it would be several days of just us droning on, and people would probably tune out.
0: Yes, I uh-huh. will. I would also like to say. Uh, we have become even worse about answering our email than previously, yeah, uh, yeah, we I get
1: a d minus for sure
0: yeah we we had a a change in the way we access our email at work that for both of us has made it harder to stay on top of, so we still read all the emails. we are so sorry that we don't answer more of them.
1: Yes, I feel bad. Uh so don't think you're shouting into the void when you communicate with us. Uh we it's, we are the people the only people reading our email. I always laugh when people say, "Will the team make sure Tracy and Holly see this?" And that we're will like, sometimes not come a up team. in emails. I'm like, "We are the team. That's it. This is us. <laughs> this is the
0: two of us." Well, and someone totally seeing I it. know everyone does this, but the thing that kind of, that hurts my heart the most is that we will get really moving emails that we we intend to answer and need to stop and reflect on before we can. And then we'll get eighty more emails and like not get back to that one. Yeah. And then I then I get very sad about it.
1: To lighten the mood and quote Philip J. Fry, time makes fools of us all. Yes. Um, so so that is the scoop. It is never because we wish to be neglectful, but just know that it's the two of us uh trying to get through everything and it's it's a, a pretty mammoth task. We do our best, it's not always fantastic. Anyway, if you would like to write to us though, having heard us say all of this, you can do so at history podcast at houseofworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History, that means uh on Instagram, on Twitter, at Facebook, on Tumblr and on Pinterest. Uh, if you would like to come to our website, that is missedinhistory.com. We have every episode of the show ever of all time. And then show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together they consolidated recently uh, onto the same page as the show page so you don't have to click to two places to get your notes and your show. Uh, And you can visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks and there you can type in anything you wish to learn about in the search bar and you will get an abundance of information. So please come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MistInHistory.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com